the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Friday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand Up for Life, a program committed to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. Whatever's on your heart, you need only to call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And if you are driving in your car, I remind you daily the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Everything else will be hands-free, and you will be safe. Hey, we've got a lot going on. I always like um, Friday shows because that means we're all going to church uh, this weekend. Tonight, uh, I'm going to be finishing the book of Revelation after a year's worth of of, uh, verse-by-verse study through the book. Uh, we're going to finish it tonight. We know the Lord's promised a blessing for those who hear it, those who read it, and those who do what's contained in it. So every word we will have read together as a church after tonight's Bible study. And uh, we will be closing the book. Sunday, of course, it's Communion Sunday here at our church. I know it is at a lot of churches the first Sunday of the month. Um, but uh, it's always a great, great time and an honor to be able to be invited to the Lord's table. Well, wherever you go to church, go and find somebody that you can minister to. Be a blessing to someone rather than look to be blessed by others. And God will not only bless you abundantly, um, but I always say this, there's something about being used by God. Find somebody who looks like they're hurting uh, ask the Lord to give you some spiritual discernment, uh, some divine appointments. Um, find out who you can be a blessing to. And it will change your whole perspective about church and why we go. Well, let's get to the questions that we've got sent in while we await any phone calls today. This first one is from Martine uh, from our email inbox. Uh, He said, why did God place the temptation of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden? Why give them that temptation knowing that they would eat from it? Well, Martine, you're right. God knew that they would eat from it because, well, God knows everything. Uh, But here's the thing to remember. Um, From the beginning, God never intended to force anyone to love him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. And so he he has to test our love. And when we're not obedient, now I know this always sounds harsh to people. It kind of shocks them a little bit that I would say it. But whenever we willfully choose sin, I'm not talking about something that just happens or uh, maybe we, we, we curse or we say uh, lose our temper or something just briefly. I'm not talking about that kind of sin. But whenever we make a willful choice to sin, 
for the moment, we're saying, Jesus, I love this sin more than I love you. And Jesus wants people who love him. It's that simple. And so the reason God placed the tree um, in the garden was to give them a choice. So God wasn't coercing them. He didn't force them. He said, here's the choice you have. Here are the consequences if you make the wrong choice. Um, But it was their choice to make. Martine, in exactly the same way, it's our choice every day who we obey. Are we going to say yes to God? Are we going to say yes to our flesh or yes to the enemy or yes to the world that we live in? And uh, we all have that tree of choice every single day in our lives. By the way, Martine, this is one of the things that we need to prepare our children for. Because children who've grown up in a, uh, a godly, loving family, children who've grown up uh, in church and moms and dads reading the Bible to them, um, they haven't had their own choice. And when they go away to school or when they go out into the job market, um, you know, that tree of choice is going to be placed right there in front of them. And one of our jobs as parents is to prepare our children always for that moment when um, the world, the enemy, and the flesh conspires to make them choose evil rather than good. So, Martine, I hope that answers your question. Um, You know, I've always had people say, well, why didn't God just not give them a choice? Well, because then God wouldn't be the object of love. And God wants to be loved. It's an amazing thing to me that God, who is love, wants to be loved so badly that we even allow the object of his love, the human race, to make a choice that would disobey. Choice is everything, and we have been given the freedom to choose. And as Paul says, let's use your freedom to say yes to the Lord rather than to say yes to sin. Thank you, Martine. Good question. Here is a question. This is anonymous from our email inbox. Uh, Good afternoon, Pastor Ron at my church. I was talking to one of our pastors, and he made it known that he didn't like to teach the Bible because he just doesn't like that aspect of his job. Now, when he said this, I was really confused. I thought pastors should enjoy teaching the Bible. In my head, that's their main job. Am I missing something or misunderstanding something? Have you ever come across this, or do any of your pastors not like teaching? I'm confused in his comment. Uh, anonymous at our church, and I'll just get this out of the way first. At our church, our, our, our teachers uh, all enjoy teaching. Um, uh, that's one of the prerequisites Uh, for them coming on staff. I want them to love God's Word with all of their heart. Now, there are some who don't like it as much as others. They're not public speakers in their own mind. They're nervous in front of a crowd. It brings them uh, a certain set of level of anxiety. Uh, And that's okay. I, I usually tell them, you know, step outside yourself. Let the Holy Spirit have His way and do the work. Um, but, um, you know, not everybody is gifted the same. Uh, I have an administrative pastor who is also a very gifted Bible teacher. And um, I would imagine there are administrative pastors uh, who aren't gifted Bible teachers. So it's just a matter of gifts. Now, I would be concerned as the pastor, if I was the pastor of this church, and I found out that one of my pastors made it known to somebody like you that he didn't like to teach the Bible, um, I would be concerned about that. So I tell all of my guys, if if, if you're going to be a pastor, you got to love the Word, you got to devour it. And, and, you know, to be fair, this guy may love God's Word uh, with all of his heart. He just may be uncomfortable in teaching it. Uh, I think the best thing for people like that is to kind of throw them in the fire. Uh, but um, God is always trying to stretch us. He's always trying to stretch us. And if we'll let him stretch us, then the power of the Holy Spirit takes over. And usually, Anonymous, when that happens, pastors like the one that you are speaking about, uh, they'll find that God used them to do pretty special stuff. And uh, and usually that, that will grow on them. So I, I, my, my initial instinct would be a little bit of concern, but at the same time, knowing that some people just don't like Uh, Being in front of a crowd, speaking is one of the things that people are the most frightened about, Um, and and maybe that just describes him. 
my next question to him, if, it, if, if I'd have been there, would be, but, but you love the Bible, right? And that's what I would have done. So giving the benefit of the doubt, it's confusing. It's a little bit troubling, but uh, we always want to think the best in, the, in those terms. So not all pastors' main jobs is teaching. Their main job is loving the people that I love. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to our first phone call of Austin, Texas. We got Mark on line one. Mark, thank you for calling. You're on the, on the air. Hi. Uh, my question is, some, sometimes when I pray, and I know what it is, I can actually hear demonic spirits like trying to influence or speak, and then I plead the blood, and it goes. I think a lot of people, I'm not saying everybody with mental problems, it, it could be demonic. But anyway, my question is, I heard a minister teaching on this, and I agree with everything he said. But then he said that we're spiritual beings and demons are spiritual beings, so they could read our thoughts. And I always thought that was a protected area that they couldn't touch, and I'm just curious what you thought. Yeah, Mark, I'm with you. There's there's no indication biblically at all that demons uh, can read our minds or read our thoughts. Now, one thing that we do know for sure is that the devil can plant thoughts in our minds, we know that, and he's tempting us to sin and do those kinds of things. Uh, it, the, the Bible's clear, David, for just one example, uh, it was Satan who uh, enticed him to number the troops of Israel in, in what I think is David's greatest sin. So uh, you're right, they cannot read our minds, but they can plant thoughts into our minds, and uh, I don't think we have to worry about them. Well, let me comment, Mark, on, on something you said. When uh, when we're praying, uh, that's the time when there's going to be the most demonic interference. That's the time when the enemy is going to try to disrupt the thought process. He's going to try to distract us. I don't know if you've noticed it, but when I really want to take a walk with the Lord and pray, my mind wanders and I notice every little thing. And I have to really focus. Sometimes it's really hard work. Now, you said that when that happens, you plead the blood. We don't have to plead the blood. We already have the blood. So we don't have to plead the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what I do when my mind starts wandering, Mark, or when I hear uh, voices that I'm pretty sure aren't the Lord. Um, I, I just, I'll, I'll just sort of refocus on the spot. And I'll say, Jesus, I don't want to hear anybody else. I don't want to talk to anybody else. I don't want to think about anything else. What I want to do is talk to you and hear from you. And I count on Jesus then, Mark, to uh, to fight the spiritual battles there. I think that's really important. You know, this issue that you bring up, Mark, is important. That's why John said uh, in First John chapter 4, uh, first verse, he said, Brothers, test the spirits because not every spirit is from God. And demon spirits will yell and they will scream. Uh, They will huff and puff and threaten to blow your house down. But we need to remember Jesus is in control. He lives in us and we're in control of that. All we have to do is take those thoughts captive. And the enemy will back off and God will give you. It's not a protected space, prayer isn't, because he's always trying to disrupt it. The devil is. Uh, but, But the Lord will give you victory when you persevere. Uh, As I mentioned before, Jesus, I don't want to hear from him. I don't want to talk to him. I want to hear what you have to say. Uh, The Holy Spirit takes over and we'll be able to hear the Lord. But remember, everybody, um, what Mark has brought up here is important. There are lots of noisy spirits out there uh, counterfeiting um, the voice of God. Lots of noisy spirits trying to get us distracted and off track. Uh, but but he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So I think that's really important. Mark, rest assured, he cannot, the devil cannot uh, read your mind. Um, I know people that will say, well, I don't even pray out loud because I don't want the devil to hear. That, I think, Mark, is a protected area. I'm not afraid to pray out loud. Uh, the devil knows me and knows uh, where my heart is anyway. Um, but uh, But I just count on Jesus to protect me. Uh, in those instances, and uh, typically he he really does do that. Good question, Mark. Thank you. I've had a question like that for uh, a very long time. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Victoria. 
Uh, and she asks, uh, Pastor, what is the best way to resolve conflict in a marriage? Um, Victoria, it's, it's really simple, and people hate it when I say this. And by the way, let me just say it again today. Uh, I'm going to be teaching on marriage and divorce to us this Sunday here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, and then the following Sunday, from sort of the same verses, I'm going to be doing a second teaching on marriage and divorce, including remarriage, uh, because that's where we are right now. So uh, that's going to be t- uh, Sunday here in our three services, and uh, and we'll do that. So, um, Victoria, people don't uh, get a little frustrated with me when I say this, but but the best way to resolve a conflict in marriage is two things, conversation and the Bible. You know, if if Paula wants to do something one way and I want to do something another way, then then we can sit down with our Bibles and decide that we're going to do it God's way. And you see, there's no conflict. I often say to our church, uh, Victoria, that that um, um, all we have to do to make sure that conflict in marriage is, is kept at a minimum and always manageable is to agree together to always agree with God. And since we know what God wants, he tells us in his word, we don't have to guess about this. So here's what, what we do. As, as a husband and wife, they're, they're reading the word together. They, and every husband and wife ought to be reading the word together on a regular basis. Uh, some days you're going to miss, things happen, but most days you should be in the word together. And the Spirit will not only knit your hearts together uh, through his living and active word, but he will also speak to both of your hearts. And, he, and, and wonderful conversation will arise as a result of that. The, the Spirit will lead, and it will be very fruitful time. So, Victoria, when you've got a conflict in your marriage, you've got to decide, okay, I know what I want, I know what he wants, but Jesus, what we really want to know is what you want. And he will always tell you, And then if you will simply not do anything about your conflict until you know what it is God wants, and then since you both agreed to agree with him, uh, then the conflict goes away. It's real simple. Now remember, most conflicts, arguments, are flesh versus flesh. I want something. He wants something. Um, All you got to do is die to the flesh so you can live for Christ. And that's when the marriage really begins to be fruitful. How can two walk together unless they agree to do so? Amos 3.3 says, and uh, Victoria, if if people and, and, and Christians should never have a question, everyone should be willing to do this. But you realize that when you, when you agree to agree with God, sometimes you're not going to get your way. So for the Christian husband or wife who has to get their way, that's always going to be a source of conflict because that's always flesh. So that's the way to do it. Now, part of the problem with that advice is this solution always identifies the spouse or both parties in the marriage, in some cases, the one who doesn't want to be obedient to the Lord. The person who says, well, I want what I want. I don't care what God wants. This is how I want to do it or this is what I want to do. Uh, that 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 spouse is going to be identified, and uh, that's when the Lord is going to start disciplining uh, the people in the marriage. So, Victoria, that's the only way, not just the best way. It's the only way to resolve conflict in a marriage. And if you do that, uh, you and your husband will commit to that. Then uh, I promise you, your marriage will get richer. Lines of communication uh, will will be open, wide open, and uh, you're going to find both of you. You're going to find yourselves right in the middle of God's perfect, pleasing, and acceptable will. Good question. Here's a question from Manny. Why do you think that we don't see miracles the way they did in Bible times? Manny, this is another question that's pretty easy to answer. Um, we don't see miracles in Bible, like they did in the Bible times because we don't need miracles. Now remember, miracles were signs and wonders. And whenever you see a sign... It points to something. And obviously the miracles that Jesus did, the miracles that the apostles did, and make no mistake, they were done with very few exceptions by the apostles. Uh, Every one of those was a sign pointing to Jesus. 
Well, here we are 2,000 years later. We live in the, the country where we have been the freest to find Jesus in the whole world. And the truth is, we don't need any signs. Everybody knows how to get to Jesus. All you got to do is seek him and he'll be found by you. We know he's real. We've got the proof, a sign of an empty tomb that validates every statement he made about himself. And because we have that, Manny, we've got um, um, all the signs that we need. And so we don't need those kinds of miracles any longer. Now, let me say something that's important not to misunderstand. There are some parts of the world where there isn't the light that there is here in the United States or by and large in the West. And in those parts of the world, many there are miracles being done regularly. Why? Because people in Muslim countries, people in third world countries, they need signs to point to Jesus. They don't don't know how to get there. And so God gives them signs and wonders. We don't need that here in the United States. We like miracles. But I think so often we approach miracles like they should happen all the time, which would then cause them to cease being defined uh, as a miracle uh, because a miracle is God stepping uh, outside of the the, the natural laws of the universe and doing things. Now, I think we're going to find out when we get to heaven there were a lot more miracles than we were aware of, but that's the general idea. There's another reason, Manny, and this might be... um, the only one that we can fix. Um, if you look in the Bible times, especially in the book of Acts, uh, the people were committed to personal holiness. They left their families or did, been disowned by their families. They risked everything to follow Jesus. And the result was they were disowned. They were on their own. It was a very difficult world to live in. Persecution was everywhere. And these men and women had to stick close to Jesus. And to do that, you got to pursue personal holiness. And we live in a country right now, Manny, where personal holiness means nothing to most people. And I say that sadly, even to most professing Christians. It's not unusual, Manny, to go to a, a, a big church and run into people that are, you know, they've been going to church all the time, but they, they, they're living together, they're having sex with people they're not married to, and they act like that's okay. We have churches now that promote all kinds of sexual perversion, homosexuality, transgender, um, philosophy, just, and, and we think nothing of it. The reality is that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And without holiness, there's not going to be any power. God gives the Holy Spirit, the context is in power, to those who obey. That's Acts 5.32. Without holiness, there's no power. And that's why you see so many counterfeit miracles and so many churches, many, that are our um, advertising miracles happen here, revival meeting tonight, uh, healing meeting tonight, those kinds of things. Uh, truth is, most Western Christians in the 21st century wouldn't recognize a real miracle if it slapped them in the face. So many of those are the reasons that we don't see many miracles. God still does them. They're few and far between by definition. But remember, in other parts of the world where people don't have the foundation that we have in Christ, um, God's still doing them. He's still doing them. Good question, Manny. Thank you very, very much. Okay, I think we've got just a couple minutes left. Uh, Olivia says, what is the right way to repent when praying? Um Olivia, just fall on your face, and I mean that not literally. Some of us are too old to fall on anything. But 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 confess that you're a sinner. First John 1 John 1.9 says that if you confess your sins, and the word confess means to agree. I'm agreeing with you, God, about my behavior, which is sinful. And he says if you do that, God is faithful. 
He will forgive you of your sins and purify you. That's a continuous present tense. He continually purify you from all unrighteousness. And then you're standing right in the presence of the Lord when you're praying. So it is the only way to repent. It's got to be genuine. It's not, I'm sorry, I keep doing this, Lord. And you, and you know you're going to do it again. That's not repentance. Because you get caught at something, and now consequences are coming. That's not repentance. Repentance is, God, I sinned against thee and thee only. Read Psalm 51, Olivia. It's the best example of a genuinely repentant prayer in all of the scriptures. It's David, after having been busted by Nathan the prophet, uh, over his sin with Bathsheba. Um, David says, uh, you know, I was sinful at birth, sinful in my mother's womb. Um, um, and he says, against thee and thee only have I sinned, O God. Um, he asked God to restore in him um, the, the joy of his salvation and renew within him a right spirit. And all we have to do to be able to do that, Olivia, is to say, Jesus, I did it. Don't blame anybody else. Take responsibility. Be willing to embrace, not enjoy, but embrace the consequences of your sin. And just say, God, I'm so sorry. I don't want to do that again. Please help me. That's the way to repent. And Olivia, when you do that, your prayers, I promise you, your prayers will be heard by God. So aren't we grateful that God makes it that easy? That's exactly what he does. Thank you, Olivia. I appreciate the question. Hey, we've got open phone lines, and we've got 30 minutes left in the week. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the final half hour of our week. We would love your live calls and questions, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here is a question from Frida. She says, why didn't Jesus know Judas was stealing from the money? Um, Frida, I'm positive Jesus knew what Judas, what Judas was doing. Uh, he knew Judas was his betrayer. He knew uh, that Judas um, had his own agenda. So yeah, he knew all of those things. The question from our perspective might be, why didn't Jesus stop him? Um, you know, it's interesting. Even the other disciples didn't know who the betrayer was when Jesus said, one of you will betray me. Uh, the other disciples didn't know that Judas was stealing from the money bag. They would have thought, well, Judas must be the most responsible. He's the one that Jesus entrusted with this. Jesus was simply giving Judas a chance, a chance to see him for who he was, a chance to say, this is what I've done. I'm so sorry. But he never did. And of course, um, I say all the time, Frida, that the more we say no to God, or the, the more we willfully sin, the harder our hearts become. And you read the Gospels, especially as you get to the end, you can almost hear Judas's heart getting harder and harder and harder. Thanks for the question, Frida. Oscar says, when I need wisdom for something, should I seek God or ask for counsel from others. Um, Oscar, we should always, always go to God first. Uh, if you need wisdom for something, if there's a question floating around in your mind, the most important thing you can do is get alone, open your Bible, and seek the Lord. When I say open your Bible, not just open it to some random page, but, but open your Bible and start reading it systematically where you were, or, or if the Spirit's leading somewhere else, just start reading at the beginning of a book and read it uh, with that kind of um, um, systematic uh, reading plan, and the Lord will show you what to do. Now, seeking wisdom from other people is always good. 
um, we need wise counsel. The problem with that, Oscar, is too many of us ask people for counsel who aren't wise. You know, their lives are a mess. Their marriages are a mess. Their lives are disorganized. Whatever it is, you know something's going on that God doesn't want going on. Why would we ask anybody like that for counsel? So there's there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors, but you have to make sure that the multitude of counselors are wise counselors, and they're going to lead you to Jesus. So first and foremost, Oscar, always, always go to God. Um, seek Him in prayer. Have your Bible open. Uh, when you're when you're you're, you're you're listening for the Lord to respond, take a walk with Him. Just get away from any and all distractions, and the Lord will will give you direction. Um, that's first and foremost, always. So that's that's what I do. Too often we run to people, and sometimes, Oscar, the reason we run to people is because we're looking for somebody who will agree with the counsel we want. And I tell the people here at Calvary Chapel all the time, God won't tell you what you want to hear. He will always tell you what you need to hear. And so that's the thing. If you need wisdom, Lord, I need to hear I don't want to take a step without you. I want to remain right in the middle of your will. So, Father, lead me and guide me. And this is really important, uh, Oscar, on the back end of this. Um, try to, to purpose in your heart. I'm not going to do anything until I know what it is God wants me to do. So I'm not going to guess at it. I'm not going to hope that this is God's counsel. I'm certainly not going to say, okay, God, if you don't want me to do this, close the doors. That's not how God works. So all you do is say, Lord, what do you want? Whether it's a job that you're being offered or you're, maybe you're wanting to leave a job and do something else, uh, to purchase something. Uh, maybe there's a, a, a more difficult trial in your life. We need the heart and the mind of God. And if we'll do that, Oscar, I promise you he will lead you and guide you. And don't become impatient because you don't hear right away. God is never late. He's always on time. But the truth is, he's never early either. And that's when most of us sort of lose our way. We start doing what makes sense to us instead of waiting to hear from the Lord. Here is an anonymous question. Uh, My husband is angry all the time and drinks too much. I pray for him continually, but it seems my prayers never get answered. Why? Um, anonymous, I don't know the why because I don't know you. Um, I don't know what's uh, the, the history between the two of you. Um, but keep praying for him. Now, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. And, and Paula would be great uh, to, to, to address this question to. Um, you know, Paula prayed for me for 13 years. And her prayers seemingly never got answered. Uh, but God was doing a work both in me and in her as well. So here, here's, and I think Paula would tell you this. Check your motives for praying. Um, do you want your husband to be better? Uh, do you want him to stop drinking uh, so your life will be better? Or do you really want him to come to faith in Jesus Christ? Make sure your motive is God's motive. Um, and then you live your life as a witness to the light of Jesus Christ in your home. As hard as it is, and I I recognize completely, I don't want anybody to to think I'm making um, this something trite. It's not. Living with an unbeliever, especially an angry unbeliever who drinks, is one of the most difficult things imaginable. So this isn't easy, and yet it's still your responsibility to get your joy, get your strength, your source of comfort uh, from the Lord. He's your husband. Jesus is, and what you want him to do is work on your earthly husband. Paula always called me her second husband, so that um, um, he'll see Christ in you, and eventually God is going to bring him to the end of himself. You keep praying for him, God is going to bring him to the end of himself, and he's going to look up one day and have no other choice. That's exactly what happened to me 31 years ago. And um, I thank God now for Paula and her faithfulness and her consistency. And and Paula will tell you, uh, for for 10 of those 13 years that she was praying for me, her motives weren't right. She just wanted her life to be better. 
She wanted a, a, a husband that would take her to church. She wanted a husband that would be kind to her and loving towards her. Um, and, and Jesus was waiting for Paul to say, okay, Lord, I don't care what happens now. Whatever you have to do to bring my husband to you, things are getting so bad that just whatever it takes. And that's when God actually really put the pedal to the metal. And, and um, my life started falling apart so fast, so fast. One of the things Paula said, and we had a lot of money. I was very successful in business. I worked really hard. And one of the things Paula said um, um, when she made that prayer, she said, Lord, it's in her journal. She's got these written in her prayer journal she was taking at the time. But she said, Lord, if, 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 whatever you have to take away from Ron, take it all away, whatever you have to do to save him. And the Lord made her stop right there. And here's what Jesus told her. He said, you know, if I take everything away from him, I'm going to be taking everything away from you too. Is that okay with you? Now that's a tough question to answer, isn't it? And Paula wrestled with it for a while. And finally she got to the point where wrestling with Jesus got her to that place where she said, okay, Lord, whatever the cost to me personally, bring my husband to faith in Jesus Christ. And I think from that point, and I'm going by memory here, Anonymous. But I think from that point, it was less than two months before I gave my heart to Jesus Christ. So um, God's doing the work in both of you. Um, sorry your husband's angry all the time. Sorry he drinks too much, but he needs Jesus. Don't have any other expectations. You just be Jesus' woman in the house. He can use you to love your husband to faith. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here's a question I knew I'd get eventually. This is from Richard. Uh, Pastor, with all the talk now about gun control, how should a Christian view the different sides of that issue? Um, Richard, here's what I think Jesus would do. I think Jesus would say, let's get to the real problem. You know, he was always doing that with his disciples. They were arguing about who's going to be the greatest, whatever it was. And Jesus made him deal with what the real problem was. The real problem was always themselves. So so I take that kind of logical approach to everything. Um, guns are not the problem. Now, we live in a country where we are guaranteed the right to have guns. It's a simple. I'm not a gun person. So I don't want anybody to think, well, he's just some right-wing fanatic and loves guns. I don't. I've actually shot a couple of guns and just thought, yeah, I don't like this. So that's just me. That's just me. But we have the right to keep and bear arms. And when something goes wrong, like this, these horrible tragedies that we have experienced here in Texas and then in other states, I think um, uh, Idaho and, and um, uh, just another hospital shooting um, this week, uh, and yesterday, a, a church shooting someplace else. I can't remember where where it was now. Um, guns are not the problem. The problem is sin. The problem is um, a people that, that are demonically possessed. In some cases, certainly the shooter in Uvalde was. The problem is we've taught these kids, and, and, and by and large, these are young men who are doing the shooting. 25 years of age or, or younger. Um, we've, we've taught them they can do whatever they want to do. We've taught them there are no consequences to sin. We've told them that God isn't real. We've told them we've evolved from, from lower life forms. And, and the result is we're just de facto animals. Uh, we've taught them that they're free to make whatever choice they want. They can sin in whatever way they want. And it's okay. And you see, that's why politicians have to blame guns, because they're not going to turn to the real problem. And the real problem is we live in a godless society. We are, I believe, with all of my heart, Richard, under the judgment of God. This, not, I don't mean the Great Tribulation. Certainly that's not the case. That's coming later. But I think God's covering has been removed from the United States of America. We've turned our backs on Israel. We've done it repeatedly. We've turned our backs on God. We've kicked him out of, of our schools. We've kicked him out of many of our churches. Many of our churches. 
um, we've kicked him out of public discourse. We've told him that his ideas about marriage don't matter to us. We're going to do what we want to do. We're no different than the idol worshippers that we read about in our Old Testaments. We've decided boys can be girls and girls can be boys and that which is obviously true no longer is. And God simply sort of washed his hands of us as a nation. And this is what we're experiencing now. Second Timothy chapter 3 Beginning in the first verse, Paul says to Timothy, as Paul knows he's going to die, his, his race is finished. Mark this, Timothy, in the last days there will be terrible times, one translation says, uh, perilous times, the King James says. And then, just so we don't think he's just being general in his comment, he specifically lists the kinds of sin that is going to be prevalent, disobedient to parents. Well, these children that are shooting people up, they don't care about any parental authority at all. We're going to be in a world without natural affection. That describes the instinctive love that a mother has for a child. That's what that word means in Greek. And yet, we live in a time now where we're killing babies, 65 million of them, since 1973. The problem's not guns, Richard. The problem is depraved, godless, ruthless hearts. And that's the place we're in. So I don't want to talk about gun control. I want to talk about getting kids back into church. I want to talk about raising them in a school that doesn't teach them that they they evolve from lower life. I want them to to know that there's right and wrong and there's a consequence when they choose wrong. And of course, the world that we live in now doesn't want any part of that. And so, along with the Apostle Paul, things are getting worse and worse and worse. It's not going to get better. And finally, Jesus is going to come for his church and then the lights are going to go out and the world is going to turn completely dark. So, Richard, that's what I think about gun control. I think it's a non-issue. The issue, the issue is our hearts before God. I said yesterday in the program, somebody asked a question about California. I said, California should repent. God has given them so many opportunities, and there's so many different things that are going on from droughts to earthquakes to fires uh, these things mudslides these things are happening year after year after year and California hasn't repented why do we expect that it's not going to continue oh it's easy to blame climate change but that's the same thing as blaming guns for these young men who are completely out of control and nobody wants to take responsibility for it. So, Richard, that's what I think. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Jennifer. Um, she says, Pastor, would you talk about worship in spirit and truth, please? Um, yeah, Jennifer, that's, it's always hard. It was this worship in spirit? It doesn't mean to worship him in tongues or anything like that. To worship in spirit, it means to worship him in the power of the Holy Spirit. And to worship him in the power of the Holy Spirit, we have to embrace the truth that is in Jesus Christ. So what he's talking about, this is, is uh, with the woman at the well in Samaria in John chapter 4. And um, she's sort of kibitzing with him about, well, well, you know, our people say you worship here, and you're Jews, you say you must worship in Jerusalem. And, and, and Jesus looks at her and says, no, God is a spirit, and he's looking for those who worship him in spirit and truth. He's talking about being genuine or sincere in worship. Now, Jennifer, we know exactly what that means. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 tells us what sincere worship is the surrendering of our lives to Jesus Christ is. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. 
This is, the King James says, your reasonable service. The NIV says, this is your spiritual act of worship, or, or I would usually say your sincere or genuine worship. And he says, doing that then, um, uh, we're, we're not to be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind that only happens in the Word of God. And he says, when we do that, then we will be able to test and approve what God's perfect will is. So that's what worship in spirit and truth is. It's not music, although it can be music. It's, it's, um, it's not goosebumps, although you might get goosebumps. But it's to be in that place where you can walk with God. You can hear from him. And you can know beyond any doubt that he's with you forever and ever, even Jesus said, until the end of the age. You know, Jennifer, uh, I like to think about this in, in real practical terms. On Sunday here at our church, Calvary Chapel, um, um, it'll be Communion Sunday. Um, when when I got saved first, and, and we, Paul and I were so excited about what God was doing, um, Whenever we would go into a church, and this was before we belonged to any church or, or went to any one church consistently, we just wanted everything, you know. And um, every time we go and see the communion elements on a table because it was going to be communion Sunday, um, I mean, we'd almost cry. Oh, it's communion. We get to go to the Lord's table. That's worship in spirit and in truth. And Sunday when people come to Calvary Chapel, they know that they're going to meet with the Lord. And some of them, too many of them, are going to just sort of do it because everybody else is doing it because that's what you always do on Communion Sunday. But others are going to come in and say, Lord, I really get to commune with you. I get to be one with you in these symbols of your body and blood. And Jesus wants that kind of sincerity from us. He wants us to come to church, to be changed, to be transformed. Not to come to church to check off a... a, a, a number from your religious to-do list. But he wants you to come to church to hear from him. He wants to tell you how much he loves you. He wants to correct you if you're making some bad choices. He wants to hear you say, oh God, I'm so sorry. And He wants to hear that so he can say, okay, no problem, let's start right now. That's what worshiping in spirit and truth is. Purposing in your heart to let the Word of God, the Spirit of God working through the Word of God, change you so that you leave church a different person than when you arrived. He wants you to know that He loves you and that you're eternally secure in that love. But He wants you to prove that you're really His by being obedient, by spending time with Him. That's what worship in spirit and truth is is all about. We can't pretend that Jesus is okay with our sin. I've had so many people, you see, well, he knows my heart, he knows I'm struggling with this, but I'm just not ready to end this relationship. Jesus says, that's not spirit and truth, that's hypocrisy. Jesus would say, end the relationship so we can have one. So, Jennifer, I hope that makes sense to you. That's what worship in spirit and truth already is. Okay, this will be the last one for this week. Uh, it is anonymous. How can we deal with the world we live in when it comes to transgender issues? I know we can't change genders, but I dare not say it publicly. Well, anonymous, the first thing I would say to you, this is the way you deal with the word, uh, with the world, is you say it publicly. When somebody says, "I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a transgender man," you could say, "No, you're not. You're a woman." And God made you that way, fearfully and wonderfully. And he loves you with all of his heart. And he wants to forgive you of your sins. We have to say it publicly. I'm getting so frustrated by Christians who, who are afraid to rock the boat of this world. It's our job to rock the boat of this world. So it's just real simple. If somebody says, well, well I'm trans, you say, no, you're not. Somebody says, and I'm going to mention it in my study on Sunday, somebody says, well, well, I'm, uh, and, and you know, now there's supposedly over a hundred genders that are recognized. 
And somebody says, well, I'm this or I'm that. You know, we got to say, no, you're not. God made you fearfully and wonderfully in his image. You're trying to remake God in your image, and that's just not going to work. So I think the first thing I can tell you, Anonymous, is that you've got to um, stand up and show some courage. Because we have to speak about this. This is core to us sharing the gospel. Will it cost you a job? It might. But Jesus will be proud of you. Do you you trust that he'll take care of you? These are issues that we've got to to take the high road, the holy road on. And we don't start yelling at people. We don't confront them. But when we get the opportunity, we've got to say that's not true. When your employer says, you know, uh, we're going to send you to, to, to gender sensitivity training, you need to send them say, you know what, I'm not going. I know there's two genders. There's male and there's female. I can show you in the Bible over and over and over where it says that. And if that costs your job, are you willing to pay that price for the privilege of belonging to Jesus Christ? Don't fear men. Fear God, we're told. And you're right, men can do some things to you and they can make you appear foolish. But God says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We know who really is the fool. So anonymous, that's the only way we can deal with it. We've got to be bold. We've got to be direct. And we've got to decide, I don't care what the people in this world say, Jesus, I'm standing with you. Hey, thanks for tuning in. It's been a good week on the program. Uh, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this has been the Word to Stand On for Life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll be back on Monday, Lord willing, on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.